0: I invite you to open your Bibles this morning, not to the passage from which I'll be preaching, but to prepare us for the ministry of the Word. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews, the 12th chapter. I'm going to begin reading at verse 5 through verse 11. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And there we will stop. Let's gather our hearts together at the throne of grace. Our Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Indeed, that sinless Son, who learned obedience through the things that he suffered, and therefore as your sinless son who went from untested to proven and perfect obedience, how much more do we as sinful sons need discipline that we might be taught how to obey you and enjoy the blessings that you promise, holiness and righteousness? So we pray that you would be with us this hour as the word of God is preached, that we would hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Lord, whether we know him or know him not, if we are here as saints or as sinners, you who are a gracious and a good God, we pray that you would demonstrate your mercy toward each one of us. Lord, you delight to open the eyes of the blind and even as we pray this morning to give life to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to translate those who are in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. And we pray that that would happen here and that your sons would be made more and more into the image of your perfect and beloved son, Jesus Christ. Extend your kingdom in the world and expand your kingdom within our hearts, we pray, for your glory that all might redound to your praise, for we ask this in Jesus' name. amen. Amen. The Bible teaches that the God of Christians is a loving and principled heavenly Father. He proves His love through His discipline of His children. Now, the Lord's primary discipline is through instruction in His Word, and that is what in the history of the church has been described as formative discipline, as child training. It is this child training of Jesus' disciples that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God, that is, it's breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction for training in righteousness now in formative discipline the lord trains us in righteousness as paul says through teaching through reproof through correction to what end the very goal the goal is very practical that we may be adequate thoroughly equipped for every good work that is that we may obey him in all things But when we fail to learn from formative discipline, the Lord will enact another kind of discipline. Usually it's this discipline that we think of, corrective discipline... The Lord will respond to our disobedience with corrective discipline. And the purpose of corrective discipline is to show us our sin, to bring us to repentance, and to restore us to a posture of cheerful, childlike obedience to God as our Heavenly Father. Now, when we met Jonah in our first message, we looked clear back into Second Kings 14 and verse 25, where we first meet Him, He appears in the pages of Scripture, not first in Jonah, but actually in the historical book of Second Kings. And when we saw Him there, He was faithfully serving the Lord as a prophet under one of Israel's kings. Well, all of that changed... We don't know exactly when the change came, but it's very evident in Jonah chapter 1 that when God gave him a command that he didn't like, he refused to obey it. In fact, we see his foolhardy attempt to run from the Lord, to get away from him, to get on a ship, to go as far away as he could, clear over to Tarshish in Spain to try to get away from God. But he found out that you can't get away from God. In fact, when you run away from Him, you end up running into Him. And that happened there on that ship going out of Joppa. And we see here, in God's meeting with Jonah, that He marshaled creation... He called upon the wind, and He called upon the waves, and He called upon a creature from the deep to bring His AWOL prophet to repentance, and to restore him to His commission. And God will do that. He will seek us out on our path down the road of disobedience, to turn us upon the heels of repentance, and bring us back, restore us to Himself, and put us back upon the path of obedience." So God's gracious purpose pursued this truant prophet to enlist him in the school that is the school of training that Jonah never would have imagined to prepare him to resume his call to return to Nineveh, to go to Nineveh to preach the gospel. Now brethren, this is a clear illustration of the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways, even as the heavens are above the earth. Jonah never would have expected that he would be enrolled in this class in the school of discipleship. Indeed, we just sang, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Now we've been looking at Jonah's commission in chapter 1. All 17 of these verses speak of the commission of Jonah. We saw the features of Jonah's commission in verses 1 and 2, that it came from the Lord, it sent him to an unexpected people, and it required him to preach an unpopular message. And then we saw the flight of Jonah from his commission in verse 3. We saw possible reasons for it, the evident folly in it, the seeming providential support for Jonah's flight. A ship was ready for him to go right where he wanted to go, to Tarshish. And then we saw the unexpected cost of Jonah's flight, that God began to deal with him very severely. And then we began in verse four to look at God's preservation, ensuring fulfillment of Jonah's commission. We saw God's powerful intrusion in verse four. We saw the sailors' valiant sailors' valiant intervention in the in verses five through twelve, that they wakened the slumbering prophet, they Frantically investigated who he was, and then we saw Jonas' Jonas partial confession and dreadful instruction. He confessed who he was, everything except for what his calling was. And they, they were to find that I trust later on when they when they when they questioned him very plainly, pointedly, they found out that he was running from the Lord. And that's why this storm had come upon them. And brethren, we, we were reminded when we looked at this, that when we are involved in our sin, and God deals with us in our sin, if there are other people around us, sometimes there's collateral damage that visits them when God deals with us. We certainly see that in the, in the, in the ship. And in the sailors, they were tossed and they were turned because God was dealing with Joni. He had his crosshairs upon his AWOL prophet to bring him back to himself. And then his dreadful instruction. God has found me out. This storm is because of my sin, my rebellion, my running from Him. What you need to do if you want to calm these seas is pick me up and throw me overboard into the ocean and then the water will become calm. Very likely when they threw Him in the water, the wind ceased, the water went completely calm. They knew it was God. It wasn't their God's. It was the living God that brought the storm and ceased the storm. And then we see the sailors' response to God's powerful intrusion. They worshipped the one true and living God. They worshipped Jonah's God. It may well be they turned away, they threw their own gods overboard, and they worshipped Jehovah, the God of Jonah. Well, that brings us to the last verse here in Jonah chapter 1. <clears throat> and that is to Jonah's miraculous preservation. Jonah's miraculous preservation. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Here we see the miraculous preservation of Jonah, the prodigal prophet. So we have three points this morning before coming to a few words of concluding application. First of all, let us look at the prodigal prophet himself, Jonah. Now, when Jonah commissioned, or when God commissioned Jonah to preach in Nineveh, He didn't present his call as a topic of discussion or debate. He didn't say, Jonah, do you think it's something you might like to do? No, he told Jonah to go. And he was required to go. God speaks, and we're to do. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Well, Jonah responded both with his heart and with his feet. But it wasn't as God had commanded. God said, go, and Jonah's heart said, no. God said, Nineveh, and Jonah's feet said, Tarshish. Jonah thought he knew better than God. Jonah's response reminds us something of Peter's reaction to Jesus' prediction of his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. Remember, it says, Peter took him aside after he spoke about suffering and death and resurrection at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. Peter took him, took Jesus aside Took him away from the other disciples, and he was going to tell Jesus his business. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Not on my watch, Peter says, you're not going to do this. This ain't going to happen to you. Well, brethren, we are reminded of an important truth, that well-intentioned disobedience and rebellion is still disobedience and rebellion. Peter, you see, would have told Jesus his business. but, But Jesus would go to the cross in spite of the apostles' objections. In fact, later on he said, No, Lord, you won't go. I will die for you. Well, Peter ended up denying Christ three times. And God would send Jonah to Nineveh despite his defection. You see, God's counsel always prevails. We might try to ram ourselves between the cogs of the machinery of God's providence, but it's going to grind us fine, and it's still going to go. So later Jesus would reprove a proud apostle, and so he does here with his prodigal prophet. You see, Jonah was to learn that it is neither pleasant nor possible to flee from the presence of the Lord, nor to dodge our duty before God. You see, when the sailors threw him overboard, they thought that they had put Jonah into the waves for him never to rise again. They thought they'd sacrificed him to the angry waves of God. And I suggest to you that Jonah also likely thought that his end had come. He thought, God is done dealing with me now. Well, in one sense, his end had come. And a new birth of sorts awaited him after his three-day gestation in the bowels of the earth. A prodigal was buried in the sea, and a new man would be ejected upon the beach. Spurgeon comments This was one of the most solemn funerals that ever took place. Into the raging billows, the living man was cast as into his grave, and lo, all was still. The sacrifice was offered, and peace returned. And then he speaks about the grand type that this looked forward to. Marvelous type of our redemption. Do we all understand that it is by Jesus' death that we must live? So that's the prodigal prophet. Notice, secondly, the prepared fish. The prepared fish. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Outward appearances can be quite deceiving. The same path through the Red Sea that became the way of deliverance for the children of Israel proved the way of destruction for the Egyptians. And for Jonah, in the waves that appeared to spell certain death, it held the miracle of his deliverance. He thought he was doomed. He thought he was going to die for sure. He thought the end had come, but going into the waves was really a beginning for Jonah, but he didn't know it. You see, God prepared a fish to preserve his prophet, to save his life in a manner so marvelous and so unparalleled that it could only be the work of God. What does the Bible say about this fish that swallowed Jonah? Well, notice first, let's briefly ponder the creature itself, perhaps giving more time than it really deserves to it. And then we will consider the appointment of this fish by God. Notice first that it is a fact that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. This isn't a myth. This isn't just a story made up. No, this really happened. Our Lord tells us so. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the earth. So it was a fact. Jesus said it was. If it didn't really happen and Jesus said it did, then Jesus would be a liar and he couldn't be our Savior. He's telling the truth second the species of the sea creature is not specified either by Jonah or by our lord matthew 12 and verse 40 in the king james reads whale and this is an unfortunate translation the hebrew word in jonah 117 and 210 is not specific In fact, the Hebrew word in Genesis 1 and verse 21 is the same word. It's translated in the Greek translation of the Old Testament with the same word here in Jonah, katos. Same word used in Matthew 12 and verse 40. This word's translated, this word katos translates what we read in Genesis 1 and verse 21. And God created great sea monsters... In fact, this Greek word katos is used to translate the names of mysterious marine creatures other, where, other places in the Old Testament, such as Leviathan and Rahab in the book of Job. This Greek word simply refers to a large fish or a sea monster. And of course, this lends an air of mystery around the fish that swallowed Jonah to be called a sea monster? The wheels get turning. What kind of sea monster is this? Well, any attempt to decide the exact species of this great fish or sea monster that swallowed Jonah, it's not possible, nor is it necessary. I offer this comment from a respected Bible encyclopedia. In his article on whale, since that's the word that's used in the King James in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, the writer observes that some of the toothed whales are physically capable of swallowing a person. Several species can swallow whole seals and dolphins weighing several hundred pounds. There are cases of reasonable authenticity of men being swallowed alive and being liberated shortly afterward. The sperm whale of this group comes into the Mediterranean and appears from time to time off the Palestinian coast. It could have been such an animal that was appointed for this task, but there is no point in speculating about the full physical description of an incident that is primarily miraculous. We must not miss that. We must not so focus on the fish that we lose sight of Jonah and lose sight of the God who sent the fish to swallow Jonah. Now it's been said that curiosity killed a cat. And I suggest to you that unmortified curiosity... Curiosity that is not satisfied with what God has been pleased to reveal, but is always hankering to know the secret things of God, has led not a few professing Christians into serious error. Such curiosity also has a way of killing undistracted devotion to God and obedience to the plain teaching of His Word. We get fixated upon these secondary and tertiary and really unimportant issues to the main theme and teaching of the Word of God. And what we do is we make a a mountain out of a molehill, and by the same token, we make a molehill out of mountains. The things that we should be focused on, we get sidetracked away from. That's why the devil appears as an angel of light. He would turn us away from the clear teaching of the Word of God to speculations about things. May our consideration of the fish not generate carnal curiosity, but instead turn our attention to the God who directed this creature to arrest his prodigal prophet and bring him into a very special prayer closet to get alone with God. And that was in the belly of a fish. Second, the fish that swallowed Jonah was sovereignly directed by God. Jonah didn't say that the Lord created the fish, but it says that He appointed the fish. Brethren, remember that the living God is the producer and the director of this drama. The earth is His and all that it contains, fish as well as men, all creatures act at His bidding. And brethren, we know from the Gospels that Jesus directs fish into men's nets to be caught by them. And here our Lord directed a fish to catch Jonah. Four times in the book of Jonah, this word appointed is found, and it always speaks of God's sovereign control. Later, God would appoint a plant to shade Jonah. He would appoint a worm to kill the plant, and He would appoint a hot wind. Indeed, God appointed the storm. He hurled a tempest from heaven upon the ship. You see, all of these events, and all of the events in our own lives are completely under the control of God. And if you're a Christian, He's working all these things together for your good. He does all things well, including sending such events, appointing such astonishing things and painful chastisements as being thrown overboard, and then being swallowed by a whale and entombed in His belly. He does this for the good of His people. We never would think that. But God is able to draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He's able to bring good out of evil. And so He did in this situation. He didn't put Jonah in the waves to drown. He didn't put him inside the the whale, or the fish, whatever it was, to kill him. And yet how often we read God's chastisements as unfair and as unkind treatment when he's seeking to produce in us the peaceful fruits of righteousness so that we might share his holiness. No discipline at the time seems pleasant. Yet how little do we know of the evil of our sin and of the goodness of God in curing us through chastisements from things which would Hurt us, hurt others, and dishonor himself. Well, let us move then from our consideration of the guilty prophet and the giant fish to ponder the great director of the divine, this drama, this grand drama. Jehovah is the chief actor, he's the real hero in this story. So, notice thirdly, the preserving God. The preserving God. We've seen the prodigal prophet. We've seen the prepared fish. Notice thirdly, the preserving God. It says Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Could you imagine being swallowed by a fish? I get nervous when I see videos of surfers out there and and there's big sharks circling around him. Brethren, God's chastening is never intended to destroy, but always to reform. In the midst of his judgment, he remembered mercy. You see, it was never the Lord's intention to destroy His servant, which he could very easily have done, but to bring him to himself and in bringing Jonah face to face with himself, to bring him face to face with his sin and with God's grace. God sometimes deals radically with his wayward children, but yet always in grace. No matter how painful the chastening. And this he does to effect our repentance and to correct us that we may be useful for the purposes for which he has called us. Brethren, each one of us is a piece of work. Bless God that he's not through with us. Now there's times when we think, well, Lord, you're dealing with me right now in a very uncomfortable way. And quite frankly, if I was to be honest, I don't like it. Can't I take an easier path to glory? But God knows what is best for each one of us. And the way he chastens you and for the sins that you commit may be different from the way he chastens me and for the sins that I commit. But it's always intended for one goal that we might be conformed to the image of his beloved son. Jonah could say with the psalmist, Psalm 118, verse 18, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Sometimes it might seem like the Lord, in dealing with us, he's beating us within an inch of our lives, but he's disciplining us not for the purpose of death, but for the purpose of life. Psalms 27, verse 13, David says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. No doubt this this verse was in Jonah's mind. But he has to deal with his son in the fish before he'll cut him loose to carry on his calling. He would be back in the land of the living. In fact, God was working life into him in a situation that seemed to spell certain death. God must at times chasten severely, but he will never destroy his wayward servants. He will finish the work that he has begun in them, though that work must at times include painful chastisements and difficult redirections. And brethren, we must keep in mind that this He does in love. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He proves His fatherly affection for His children by laying stripes upon them. And we can be cavalier about, that ah, no big deal. I can bend over and I can take those licks. Or we can say, don't, don't touch me. You're going to kill me. You can treat it lightly or treat it as more severely than it really is. And the purpose won't be realized if we don't get an attitude adjustment in the midst of our discipline. He has sworn not only to chasten, but also to preserve those whom he chastens and chastises. You see, brethren, he has... Pledged by oath sworn promise written in the blood of his son to keep his children, keep them in his faithful covenant through chastening. The promise Jehovah made to David and to his royal seed that we read of in the 89th Psalm applies to all of the lord's covenant children all who constitute a royal priesthood, those who are sons of the most high god look at look at psalm eighty nine verses twenty three or excuse me thirty two and through thirty four How are servants prepared? how are they kept? How are they enabled to carry out the work that God has called them to? Then I will visit their transgression with the rod. Previously saying, when they sin, I'm going to deal with it. Then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from Him. He might think, God has abandoned me. He's cast me off. I'm a reprobate. No, that's not how we're to read the discipline. But I will not break off my loving kindness, God says, from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. He would deal falsely in his faithfulness if we needed discipline and he didn't give it. That's what's being said here. I'm going to keep my promise and I'm going to discipline you as you need it. Verse 34, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of. Of my lips, I will keep my promises to discipline, to restore, to protect, to preserve, to promote your good. God wonderfully demonstrated his loving kindness in Jonah's preservation. Well, how so? Well, first of all, he preserved Jonah from drowning after being thrown overboard. You would think when he got tossed overboard, he would have inhaled and filled his lungs with water. Well, apparently that didn't happen, writes one man. Jonah, as appears from his thanksgiving, that is in chapter 2, was not swallowed at once, but sank to the bottom of the sea. He talks about the weeds being wrapped around his head and being at the base of the mountains. But, I, but sank to the bottom of the sea, God preserving him in life there by miracle, as he did in the fish's belly. Then when seaweed was twined around his head, he seemed to be already buried until the sea should give up her dead. It seemed like it was all over. Well, the last chapter in Jonah's life wasn't being written right then. brethren how comforting to know that Jehovah is the God of second chances he could have given Jonah what he deserved and he would have been right in doing it but he 's made promises to him that he 's going to keep and sometimes painfully to keep that our God is the God of second chances and third ch- how many chances has God given you maybe you've sinned the same way again and again and again you've fallen. God picks you up. You're like the the reed that is bent and God straightens it. You're like the smoking flax that He breathes upon and fans back into a flame. You thought it was over and God says, No, it isn't. Our God is a God of 70 times 7 forgiveness. What He commands of us he performs, performs himself. Indeed, brothers and sisters, are you not trophies of God's 70 times 7 forgiveness and restoring mercy? The fact that you're here, I think, indicates that, does it not? He preserves us that we, that he may restore us to service. Further, Jonah was preserved from being shredded by the teeth of of the fish, and then by being digested by the fish, in the in his stomach, he didn't get turned into a fish by being assimilated into the body of the sea monster. No, God built a prote- a safe, safety net as it were around him. Swallowed and then lodged in the fish's gut, preserved from suffocation and from disintegration by the fish's digestive juices. Brethren, this is a miracle indeed. Jonah did not undergo decay because God miraculously preserved him from injury and death. And add furthermore to this that Jonah was conscious the whole time, he wasn't burped up on the beach. In a coma? That whole time he was in there, he was praying. God was having dealings with him. He was conscious. He was able to think clearly enough to pour out his soul to the Lord in prayer and praise. Brethren, how wonderful this is. We have to say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Can he bring... Good out of the evil that I'm in. He's dealing with me maybe severely. But does he not have a gracious end goal here? Now what of Jonah in the fish's belly? What must have been going through his mind? What occupied his thinking? He's AWOL, he's arrested by God for his treasonous departure from duty. What were his thoughts about himself? What were his thoughts about God? What were his thoughts about his mission as he languished inside of that fish for the better part of three days? Calvin suggests that it is certain that the Lord had so awakened him that he must have endured continual uneasiness. He was asleep Before, when he was down in the ship, he was asleep before he was swallowed by the fish, but the Lord drew him, as it were, by force to his tribunal, and he must have suffered a continual execution. He must have every moment entertained such thoughts as these. How does he know now, how does he thus deal with me? God does not indeed slay me at once, but intends to expose me to innumerable deaths. When is the end finally going to come? He goes on. We see what Job says, that when he died, he would be at rest and free from all evils. Jonah, no doubt, continually boiled with grief because he knew that God was opposed to and displeased with him. He doubtless said to himself, I have to do not with men, but with God himself who now pursues me because I have become a fugitive from his presence. See, Jonah might have thought, well, as bad as it is being in the belly of this fish, I'm free from the presence of God. No, God had special dealings with him in the belly of that fish. There's no such thing as a God-forsaken place on this earth, not even in the belly of a sea monster. We run to try to get away from God, and there he is. Calvin continues, As Jonah then must have necessarily thus thought within himself of God's wrath... His case must have been harder than a hundred deaths, as it had been with Job and with many others who made it their chief petition that they might die. God, take my life. Now as he was not slain but languished in continual torments, It is certain that no one of us can comprehend, much less convey in words, what must have come into the mind of Jonah during these three days. Could it be that Jonah, in the fish's belly, was for him what the fiery furnace would later be for the three Hebrew young men? In the lion's den for Daniel, they for obedience, but he for disobedience, so disciplined. But one conclusion we must come to is this that all trials are intended to perfect the faith of God's true people, to bring the disobedient to obedience, and to perfect the obedience of God's people. Jonah in the fish was in the fish's belly for 3 days. Now if we fast forward in anticipation of Jonah's deliverance might we not see him rejoicing with the 3 Hebrew young men and with Daniel and with Moses and Israel after their escape from the watery tomb that destroyed their cruel enemies? Might we say with the prophet, Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Soon the preserved prophet would say with his Fellow prophet, who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. After three days, the Reformed prodigal would leave his sins buried in the sea of God's forgiveness to rise, as it were, in newness of life. And note finally the time of Jonah's captivity in the fish's belly. It lasted three days and three nights. Now, brethren, we're not to understand this as three full 24-hour days, even as it is a type of our Lord's entombment that lasted one full day, one 24-hour day, and parts of a day before and parts of a day after. He was crucified in the afternoon. He died he w- on Friday. He was in the grave all day Saturday. And he came out first thing on Sunday. God's miraculous preservation of Jonah From certain death showed the prophet that God was not done with him, that he had yet work to do in him and through him. Such is the gracious purpose behind God's chastening. You see, there in the belly of that fish, God was dealing with Jonah, chastening him, encouraging him, re equipping him, ready to return him to his call. And note further that God's chastening of Jonah served another gracious purpose. That God chastened and restored his prodigal prophet was intended to convey a message for Nineveh and for Israel. He spared Jonah to call Nineveh and to call Israel to repentance. One man writes. The miraculous intervention was calculated to affect not only Jonah, but also Nineveh and Israel. The life of a prophet was often marked by experiences which made him, through sympathy, that is through the reception of other people and dealing with them, best suited for discharging the prophetical function to his hearers and his people. The infinite resources of God in mercy as well as judgment are prefigured in the devourer being transformed into Jonah's preserver. The fish that he thought spelled death meant life, you see. And we'll see how this applies to Jesus in a later message. This writer goes on to say, Jonah's condition under punishment, shut out from the outer world, was rendered as much as possible the emblem of death, a present type to Nineveh and Israel, of the death of sin, as his deliverance was of the spiritual resurrection on repentance, and also a future type of Jesus' literal death and resurrection by the Spirit of God. Brethren, we saw this, I think, once before, that God's dealing with you and his dealing with me, whether in startling providences, whether it's chastening for sin, or whether it's an unmerited blessing. Those things are intended not simply for our benefit, But it's for the benefit of others as well that they might learn from us. They might benefit from us. They might be warned from us. That God's dealings with us have a message for them and God's dealing with them, a message for us. Well, the Bible teaches this. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. writing about the children of Israel and God's dealings with them is intended to be a word for the new covenant believer now these things happen to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come they happen to them instructive for them but they're instructive for us too they're not just dusty old Bible stories. They're lessons that are very real and relevant for you and for me. That's why Paul writes in, in Romans 15, and f- verse 4, For whatever was written in earlier times, talking about the Old Testament again, was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Are intended to encourage our hope. So, what does it say to us by way of abiding lessons? I have three things to say, and we'll be done. First of all, God severely chastens us to make our sin and rebellion unpleasant. God loves us too much to allow us to enjoy our sin. 17th century English preacher Jeremy Taylor said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. Brethren, if we find no contentment in God, we will find no will or delight in doing God's will. But if we love God, we'll want to please Him, right? If we rebel against God's will, we will, like Jonah, invite God's painful dealings. Brethren, the rule of law is the rule of love. Happy are the holy. And that is why the way of the transgressor is hard. And we should expect this. Let me ask you, are you walking in Jonah's shoes right now? Are you heading, heading from Gath Hefer down to Joppa? Do you have Tarshish in mind Maybe you haven't said anything to anybody else, but your toes are pointed in the direction of disobedience. Let's not pick on Jonah. Let's take Jonah as a mirror and look at ourselves. God loves us too much to allow us to continue unchecked in our rebellion. He, he chastens us that we might find contentment in obeying him. Happy are those who are taught by grace to say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Where has your will led you before? It's only got you in trouble, as I trust yours has, as mine did and has. Let me ask you again. Are you walking in Jonah's shoes? Are you chafing against God's authority? Are you dodging your duty? Are you defying his word? Are you grumbling against his providence? Lord, these things aren't happening the way I want them to fall out. It's not as if I would have written this script. Lord, you're dealing with me in a way that I wouldn't deal with myself. our attitude toward the Lord is very telling on how we respond to his providence oh may the Lord teach us to say how blessed are those who observe his testimonies who seek him with all their heart may I be numbered among them Remember the answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Let me ask you, are you enjoying God? Or do you see Him as a cosmic killjoy? He just gets in the way of your plans and You want things to go differently. Well, if you're not and I'm not enjoying God, the problem isn't with God, the problem is with me. He does all things well, He works all things together for good. He's a God of grace as well as discipline. And even when He disciplines, He disciplines in love. We find God enjoyable if our heart is right with him. And if you're not enjoying God, you're in a dangerous place. Jonah wasn't enjoying God. God said go to Nineveh, and Jonah says no, I'm going to Tarshish. Thank you. You know, we don't we don't win arguments against God. That's a fool's errand. Brethren, apostasy begins in the heart and moves to the feet. You see, Jonah went astray in his heart before he went down to Joppa. What areas of departure? Is there apostasy in front of you? Are there sins that you're not dealing with? Does God have a righteous controversy with you that only you know about and nobody else does? Sin corrupts all that is good and right. And until we find the Lord delightful, we will find duty distasteful. We are not in a good way if our hearts are wandering from him. Secondly, God mercifully pursues us with chastening that we may grow in faith. You see, the Lord wisely Knows that we're not ready for deliverance from chastening until we're restored to faith. He'll continue to use the rod until he breaks our stubborn spirit. He'll never use the rod more than he needs, but he won't use it less than he needs. He's a principled, loving father. And he knows when the rod has done its work. He can see the change of heart. You see, when the rod has done its intended work, we'll be able to personalize what Israel says to the Lord in Psalm 99 and verse 8. O Lord, our God, thou didst answer them. Thou wast a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. that we'd be able to say with the psalmist, loving kindness and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Thirdly, finally, God is able to marvelously preserve us from ruin in the midst of our afflictions. Isn't that writ large upon the prophecy of Jonah? The Lord miraculously preserved his rebel prophet in a most unexpected way. And unbeknownst to Jonah, God was with him throughout his his ordeal. God was with him when he he hurled the storm from heaven. He was with Jonah when he was thrown overboard and sinking in the deep. He was with Jonah while he was entombed in the belly of the fish. God had Jonah and he wasn't going to let him go. Jonah wanted to let God go, but God wouldn't let Jonah go. Bless God that He holds us in the hollow of His hand. He won't let us go. He staked too much upon us, arriving in glory, he sent His Son to die for our sins. And He that began that good work in us will continue to work, and He will make us more and more like Christ, in whose image we are, even through this child, child training, being made. He will perfect us in the image of His Son. And whether our trial comes to test our obedience or whether it's chastening for sin, the Lord will not desert us. He will not abandon us. Rather, He will uphold us. I close with Isaiah 41 and verse 10. For seeing the trial that they were going to have under Nebuchadnezzar, the furnace of affliction they were going to face. They are going to hang their hearts in the willows as they were carried off to Babylon. Thought they were never going to return again. Thought that they were done. They were toast. God was finished with them. What does Isaiah say? Do not fear, for I am with you. Oh, brethren, how we should delight in the promised presence of God. Do not fear, for I am with you. You children, you're not afraid when your dad is with you, right? He's holding your hand. You can look up in his eyes, and the fears melt away. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let me ask you, is this God your God? Can you say, I'm being kept by the power of God for His salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time? Can you say, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've entrusted to him against that day. Can you be, are you able to say, for me to live is Christ, and therefore to die is gain? Oh, if you can't say that this morning, get alone with God. He's here in this place. Cry out to him and say, God, I'm a sinner. I've been running with, away from you as fast as my feet will take me. But Lord, I hear your voice calling to me. Make me willing to come to you. Give me faith in Jesus. Give me repentance from my sin. Give me a new heart that loves you and loves your word. My rebellion and my sin has brought me nothing but pain and sorrow. Make me to be a new creature in Christ. And I'll give you unceasing praise today and forever. Let's pray. Our Father, how can we not see ourselves in Jonah and see Jonah in us? We thank you, our Father. We praise you for your patience and your pardoning mercies, for your loving kindness that's new every day. Great is your faithfulness. We thank you, you that you have not left us to ourselves. You've not given us over to our sins. You haven't given us what we deserved. Indeed, you gave You gave Jesus, you gave to Jesus what he didn't deserve, our sins and our punishment so that you might give us what we don't deserve, your pardon and your image in him. Oh God, have mercy upon each one of us this day. Restore us if our toes are pointed away. If we're actually on the path, snatch us from the jaws of apostasy. Put our feet back on the narrow road which leads to life. Oh Lord, hear us. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Hear us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.